clock is ticking. The hunt is on. Two strangers are locked in a deadly race to find you. One is a billionaire with more money than he can ever spend. The other is a ruthless killer with nothing to lose. One of them will change your life. The other will stop at nothing to end it. But who will find you first? The number one Sunday Times bestseller, Linwood Barkley, is back with his electrifying new thriller, Find You First, out now. Hello, and welcome back to Hiff Player, the podcast by Harrogate International Festivals. On today's bumper episode, we're thrilled to bring you two interviews with the fantastic authors Nadine Matheson and Mel McGrath, as they sit down with Jake Kerridge to discuss their new books. Don't forget that you can get both Nadine and Mel's new books and read a fantastic free sample of each by heading to the podcast section of our website. So sit back, relax and join us as we bring HIF into your home. This episode is kindly supported by HQ HarperCollins. Hello, uh, welcome to the Harrogate International Festival's podcast. My name's Jake Kerridge. I'm the crime reviewer of The Telegraph. And today I'm bringing you a special episode in association with HQ HarperCollins. I'm talking to two fine thriller writers. Uh, Later on, I'll be talking to award-winning author and co-founder of Killer Women, Mel McGrath. And she'll be telling me about her new book, Two Wrongs. But first, I'm welcoming criminal solicitor and now debut crime author, Nadine Matheson, who is talking about her blood-curdling novel, The Jigsaw Man. Uh, It's a book that's already received great reviews. The Independent says, for lovers of modern crime fiction, Matheson's macabre novel will hit the spot. And the Daily Mail says, a spellbinding game of cat and mouse with chilling echoes of Thomas Harris's The Silence of the Lambs. So welcome. That's that's great company to be in, isn't it? Uh, Congratulations. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you. That's amazing company to be in. Uh, I also like this endorsement you got from the thriller writer, David Jackson, uh, he said, uh, move over Hannibal Lecter. There's a new serial killer on the block in this awesome debut from Nadine Matheson. The Jigsaw Man will have you in pieces, literally. And uh, I suppose that, that's where the book <laughs> the book starts with uh, people in pieces. Um, we're dealing with uh, a human jigsaw, really, or possibly more than one human jigsaw. But can you tell us to start with uh, a, a bit about the grisly discoveries at the start of the book? Yeah, the, um, the discoveries, they start in Deptford in southeast London, and it's the middle of a heat wave, so it's the beginning of September, and we have normal mudlarkers, we have students walking along the riverbank, and one by one, they discover pieces of a body on the riverbank, and we also have a poor kitchen fitter in the yeah. beginning of the book who discovers um, a human part in the front of the house, and our main character, Henley, Detective Henley, She's returned back to work, but she's on desk duties. But when she's making her way to work, she's diverted to the crime scene by her boss. And in, she also has a new partner, which is not which is not too happy about, and um, poor Remuta. And so she attends the, the crime scene with her new partner, and she just looks at the body parts and realizes they match the MO of a serial killer who was called the Jigsaw Killer, and his name's Peter Olivier. But the problem is Peter Olivier is serving a life sentence at Belmarsh Prison. So she realises she's got a copycat yeah. on her hand. And that's how the Jigsaw Man starts. Yeah, it's a bit, one of the most gruesome starts to a book 
<laughs> I think you can have. We won't go into too much detail. We don't want to put people off their no. dinner, but um, uh, it, it does start. There, there are some interesting practical details about how you actually, you know, carry out um, chopping somebody into bits and moving them around. And I, I was fascinated to discover a human head weighs eight pounds, so it's not that easy to carry about. <laughs> did did you have to do research, <laughs> research into sort of the practicalities of this kind of thing? I did because I grew up by the river, so you know, walking around the river banks and find well, not find we didn't find bodies, but finding all different items that's not unusual. But I just thought about the practicalities of carrying a body that's being dismembered and then dumping it along the river bank. So I had to do research and. I uh, luckily I know a, patholo- a pathologist, so I got in contact with a pathologist. Um, find out how much does a human head actually <laughs> weigh? Yeah, it wasn't the things I thought I'd be googling, and it's not yeah. something that's ever come up in my day job <laughs> as a criminal solicitor. <laughs> uh, you say you say you you know you you live around there and you've seen things being taken out of the river. Have you ever seen anything nasty be dredged up out of the river yeah, by well, someone? Yeah, when we was growing, when we was growing up, when we were kids, we found dead animals. We found a dead dog, unfortunately, um, washed up on the riverbanks. But as a teenager, I saw a body being pulled out of the river. So it didn't happen every day, mm. but occasionally, because I live near near Deptford Creek, so things would always end up around the creek. So I did see a body being pulled out. Mm. As you said at the beginning, uh, the book starts with various people in different locations discovering. Uh, different bits of bodies and as you said one of them was a mudlarker um, maybe some people don't know what that is can you just um, remind us I I call them mudlarkers uh, like amateur treasure hunters mm. so you normally find them and there's lots in Greenwich but you normally find them on the riverbanks they're normally looking for I call it looking for treasure yeah. so in the beginning of the book I say they're looking for Roman radiate coins and things like that so you'll always find them um, and it it didn't seemed strange to me that a mudlarker wouldn't pick, find something sure. <laughs> that they wouldn't that they wasn't necessarily looking for but yeah having uh, him discover uh, a, a bit of the body it, it's one of the things you really bring that area to life which you obviously know well and you live there um, and that place you know with those great wharves in southeast london that some people find it sort of very eerily beautiful landscape and other people can't stand it but you you evoke it very well in the book and um it's obviously an area um, you wanted to portray. It was because I've seen it change so much. So when I was growing up, it was just loads of industrial estates, loads of warehouses, and the warehouses were still active. Yeah. So I saw it when it was a working, busy place. But obviously now it's changed and it's all expensive apartment blocks <laughs> overlooking the river. And I mean, there's always been tourism and Greenwich, so that's nothing new. But obviously, there's more people now living here. We've now got more coffee shops, yeah. <laughs> more coffee shops than you could ask for. <laughs> but I think for me, it was important just to show Greenwich and also show Deptford mm. in that light. Yes, it's not somewhere I've uh, read many crime novels about. Um, the most recent, no, yeah, the most recent one I could think of is uh, Laura Shepherd Robinson's. Put blood and sugar, but that's Deptford back in the 18th century. So it's interesting to read about modern Deptford. It is. I love her book. And what I loved about it was um, 
there's a map in the beginning like to see my road yeah. and I messaged her and I was like my, my road is there but it's a nice con I think it's actually it's a good contrast to Deptford yeah then yeah and how it is in modern times how it is now yeah but in some ways it hasn't changed you know like those mudlarkers that they have been doing that for centuries in the yeah. same spot exactly the mudlarkers are still there and the murders so um and the book focuses on uh um a group of uh detectives they're called the serial crime unit so they deal with serial killers Uh, it's a very tight-knit group there they're working together in greenwich um and i uh, i know the fbi has a serial crime unit but i i wasn't sure if this was um you invented this uh in london or if it's based on a real unit no, I'd, invent, I'd invented it, and I didn't know the FBI had a real unit until afterwards. Right. I, think, I don't think I found out until like a year later, so I thought I'd been all clever. Creating this new unit. And I thought, oh, it says the FBI has one, but we don't have one, no. so there you go. Yeah, you have been clever then, yeah. <laughs> this is the first Thank the you. first UK <laughs> one appears in your book. Yeah. So there, um, I mean, I, I bet the FBI one is quite glamorous and has a lot of money pumped into it, but... Uh, that's not how it works in your book. So the serial crime unit, they're basically on one floor of a boarded up police station in Greenwich, aren't they? Um, they don't They don't have a lot of funding, not really a lot of prestige. Um, so you haven't made it too glamorous for them. You haven't made life easy for them, I think. No, I haven't. It's definitely not glamorous. And the police station, it's been, it actually exists and it's been closed down for so many years. So... When I was driving past, I thought it'd be interesting just to have like this specialised unit just stuck there, yeah. you know, away from the main hustle and bustle of the main police stations. And as you said, they're not funded. They're kind of a bit neglected, but the work they do is important. And it's the work that does that kind of makes the headlines mm. also. So to have that contradiction of being so important, but really, we don't really care if you've got heating or not. Yes. <laughs> Wherever you've got a working fridge. <laughs> So it's it's kind of an anti CSI. It's, it's it's not glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of whizzy <laughs> equipment. And uh, your main protagonist. No. Yeah. Your main protagonist, uh, wonderful character, Di Henley, Angelica Henley, and we first see her, don't we? Um, she turns up to the crime scene in Deptford in her Wonder Woman T-shirt. She's been basically hauled out uh, of bed. Um, and as you said, this is her first investigation in a while it is because um she's an established police officer she's an established detective and i wanted to create a character that was already established in life i didn't want us to join her at the beginning of her career but obviously in the book as the readers will discover she's had a trauma which is why she's been kind of death bound for the last couple of years and also she had a baby so she's been completely taken out of the action so her you know being forced in effect to go back to work and it wasn't it's not an easy case mm, no. that she goes back to work <laughs> on <laughs> but yeah so so we're with her when she's you know it's really her first crime scene for a couple of years isn't it and she yeah. she sees the crime scene investigator and she's remembering uh how she felt the last time she saw him, which was when, as she put it, she was the crime. You know, he had to check her she over. Was. Yeah, she was. She was. In fact, she, she would hate being called if she was the victim. 
in the crime, which is the last time that she saw the yeah. forensic investigator. And as I said, she has a new partner who she doesn't want. So she's having to deal with going back to work and having to train, I said, is rather enthusiastic <laughs> training detective. Yeah. You know, he turns up to a crime scene and I say he looks like he's in his school uniform, <laughs> all, brand new, all brand new suit and shiny shoes. And then she takes him along the walk on the muddy riverbanks. Yeah. Yes, because she has a, a regular partner, doesn't she, who she prefers to work with. And yeah, as you say, she's 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 saddled with this uh, trainee, although he's not he may not be too much of a liability, but we, we, we won't we won't say anything um, more no, about what yet. happens. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, their their relationship is very, you know, it's very entertaining. Thank you. I wanted him. He's from Bradford. So he's kind of he's a fish out of water yeah. sort of character. Yeah. And he, I think he kind of has this glamorous um, view of what the serial crime unit is supposed to be. And then he gets a very big reality check <laughs> when he yeah. starts work. And uh, as, as you said at the start, um, the jigsaw man, the serial killer, uh, is in prison. Uh, he, he still takes a very keen, unhealthy interest in Angelica, doesn't he, from he prison. Does. We see We see a lot of him. He does. We, we do. And... Um, I've always felt that with um, Olivier and Henley, they, it's, it's not a love-hate relationship, but they kind of feed off each other in a yeah. very strange um, kind of way. And I, even though I think Henley would never admit that, mm. she does kind of need the energy that he gives her. He kind of gives her a drive. So when they first meet again after all these years, it's, it's a challenge for her, but I think secretly she wants to mm. see if he's as damaged as she is. Mm. And yeah, he's very, very creepy character. Um, and the serial killer novels they they go in and out of fashion, don't they? They've, I think they've been a bit the serial the old serial killers they've been a bit more quiet of late, I think. Uh, and um, you you brought them back to the fore. It's true because I remember when I started writing um, the book, my main thing was I think the serial killers need to come back. As you said, they've been quiet for yeah. so long. And I don't think South East London's had a serial killer <laughs> in crime fiction. <laughs> and there's a lot of crime fiction that I've read, especially that's been London-based. The detectives have always been to be based in North London. Mm, yeah. For example, of Mark Billingham, Bourne and um, Tony Parsons' character, he's, I think he's just based in Smithfield. So it's in the city. So I thought South East London was missing out a lot. Yes, yes, I agree. Angelica, as well as having to deal with all of this trauma um she also has um problems at home to worry about as well she does she has a husband um rob and they have a child who's two years old so he's kind of been used to especially after what she went through he's kind of used to having her doing a maybe more regular nine to five going to the office doing desk work and then mm. coming home and having her back out there working on an active investigation he doesn't like it so he's got there's this pressure yeah in the home for her to give up yes. the job and she's not the sort of person who takes kindly to someone anyone <laughs> especially her husband telling her what no but she but uh, also she is the steady wage earner in the family isn't she she is he's a, he's a freelance journalist yeah. so and i think he resents being at home yeah a little bit yeah but this is this is interesting because on the one hand readers probably can't relate to someone who's you know been dealing with a serial killer and is now investigating 
uh, another serial killer, but they can relate more to you know these sort of arguments in a marriage and the difficulties of um, yeah. you know balancing childcare with job and working out who's going to keep their job and earn the money. So you have both the, this, exactly. this relatable stuff and the more sort of gory, unusual stuff. <laughs> I wanted it to be. I think one thing for me was when I was creating the character, especially Henny, I didn't want her to come across as being too cliche and I didn't want her to be flat. Yeah. So I thought the best way to show how um well three dimensional she is, how much how multifaceted she is, is to show her family yeah. life yeah. and show the impact of, you know, being a being a wife, being a mother, not only having issues with her husband, but also there's other family stuff yeah. going on. And dealing with that, but also getting up and going to work. Yes. Yeah. You do get a proper sense of that, you know, of it really being a job and having to get up and being a bit of a slog. <laughs> uh, it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah. And then you, you mix that up with all the excitement of uh, pursuing a killer. So it works really well. I think she kind of, despite the fact it is a very horrible case she's working on, I think she does enjoy it. Mm. And it's the satisfaction of, she needs to solve this and get and getting resolution for um, the victim's family. So, so that drives her. Yes. I think it probably drives her a lot more than being a wife. Yeah, much to her husband. Well, there is this. Uh, yeah, there is this great phrase you use. Uh, just talk about when she sees the body, or remembering when she saw the body at the beginning of the book, and she said she couldn't ignore the electric thrill that had run through her. Death was her adrenaline. And it scared her. So she's, you know, she actually acknowledges and is scared by the fact that this is what mm. really motivates her, gets her going, excites her more than being a wife and mother, is dealing with death. Yeah. I think that's what I like about her. Mm. That, that she does, she's very aware of her flaws. Mm. Yes, that's true. And, yes. Mm. Yes, and that's that's a bit more unusual because you get a lot of flawed cops, but often they just try and completely ignore their <laughs> flaws or don't even notice. <laughs> exactly but she's very no she's very aware of them and I think she does try to address it but I think she if if she finds the flaws are getting in the way of her ability to do her work then she will um, push it to the side Mm. and uh, as well as her home life and then she has a difficult relationship with her father too and uh, uh, various other problems yeah because her father um he suffers from depression so I mean, it's not a spoiler or anything. So her her mother had died yeah. about a year earlier. So she's dealing with the death of her mother. Her dad is obviously not coping as well with it at all. So he's effectively having um, a breakdown. So she has a brother, an older brother as well. So they're yeah. trying to manage that part of their life as well and also look after her father. And I think that's one part of her life where she doesn't really have a handle yes. on there's not anything that she can that she can do. Mm. She can't solve she can't solve that problem of her dad. And again, it's something many readers will be able to relate to. And uh, yeah, and I think especially now we've all been in this pandemic lockdown. I think we're much more aware of you know our families and our friends and what they possibly are going through and how much we can and what or how much we can't possibly be there for them in this time. Mm. And uh, Salim. Uh, as you say, he's moved from Bradford and he has uh, uh, a personal problem as well. I don't know if you want to give it away if it's too much of a spoiler, but he, I, he has a um, personal problem. No, we'll leave it. 
we'll let yeah. <laughs> we'll let the yes, yeah, out. let the reader find out. But, he but he, yes, he he has yeah. his own family issues. We can say that. Um, he does most of And uh, in in both their cases, we can see their dedication to the job that they're determined to rise above their personal problems and do the job. And uh, it, it seems it comes across as a profession you really have a lot of respect for. And I assume in your day job as a solicitor, um, you must have met a lot of police detectives. I have. I mean, I've been a solicitor for 16 years and obviously been, doing, been involved in criminal law for a lot longer than that. So I've met so many different police officers from the trainees right at the early start of, start of their career to the established detectives who have been doing the job longer than I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> so they've been doing, doing the job for years. And it's, a, it's just a contrast and just seeing how passionate some officers can be about the investigation and getting the right result and how some officers might not be, their motives are, are slightly different. Mm. Um, but obviously, so I've met officers at various stages and then I come at it from a different point of view, which is as a defence listener. Mm. So I'm looking after my clients. And for me, I've always said I'm looking for the holes in their case, being where they've mm. made the mistakes. Yeah. Whereas when I'm writing the book, I'm doing it yes. as a police investigation yes. a police procedural so i'm trying to effectively fill the holes mm. yeah. so this investigation is tight and uh, do you think uh, it would seem obvious that being a criminal solicitor is ideal training for writing a crime novel um obviously not quite as good as being a detective but uh, <laughs> yeah, i mean is that the case do you think uh, it, it gives you an insight into criminals and crime investigation yeah, it gives me an insight, I think, into, I say clients, into defendants and the different type of people who are alleged to commit right. crimes and actually do commit crimes. And the fact, I always said, the, the thing I've always loved about a crime is that I could have 20 people all charged with the same offence, but every single case will be different. And there's so many different things we have to take into account, which I think can probably be overlooked when we're just watching things on TV or just reading in books and you realise how much someone's upbringing can affect their behaviour, um, jobs, their relationships with their friends and their families, and then also how they relate to me mm. as a solicitor. It's like, how open are they going to be or are they going to be like a closed book? So having that experience with different sort of clients, I think I'm able to bring that forward into a book and then there's little things as well which I say I know what a police station and um, smells like I know what the cells are like um I know how how it feels to sit in the police station waiting for the police officer to be ready and you know what potentially causes those delays sure. so having that experience as a solicitor helps and then luckily I've got friends yeah. <laughs> who, are, who are police officers and a friend is also a crime scene investigator. That's very useful. So <laughs> I've got that. We went to school together. So it's oh, great. Oh, right. that she ended up becoming a crime scene investigator yeah. and a police officer. Just a coincidence. And I became a solicitor. Yeah. Just a coincidence. We didn't plan it at all when we were 12. <laughs> Can you say just a, a little bit about what your job involves? I mean, would you, I, I don't know if you represent murderers or is it different types of criminal? I've done, I've represented murderers. Um, it's, it's everything. So I've done the really basic, I call them like the thefts where someone's yeah. stolen a joint of lamb yeah. from Saints Creek to 
like really big fraud cases right. and murder cases so and sex offenses and things like that so i've covered everything but i haven't like it's saying i haven't represented the serial oh, right to my knowledge and i would have liked it sounds really strange i would have liked to yeah no i get, <laughs> just yeah. To have that. I get it yeah but that's yeah that's never happened yeah. at all so you've had to make up your own I've had to make up my own. I think I did a good job <laughs> making up Olivier. Do you think you feel, um, having been in this world, you have an obligation to sort of stick to investigation procedure very accurately, which maybe other writers who are probably making a lot of it up anyway, they, they don't feel the same obligation? Or, or do you, you know, do you feel happy to sort of twist things if it suits the story better? And I feel it's. I think it's a bit of both. I feel an obligation to make sure that things are accurate because once you know my background, if I get it wrong, immediately you'd be like, "How could you get it wrong? Like, how good a solicitor are you? Sure, <laughs> you yeah. can get like basic, procedural um, facts wrong." But then sometimes when I maybe hit a corner when I was writing, I had to remind myself it is fiction. You can make certain things up. So there have been occasions when I've done that, but I would say 99% of the procedural aspects and the legal mm. terminology, all of that is correct. And I said, because I had an obligation to make sure um, it was correct. Yeah. That's great. Um, and um, you wanted to have a lead character, a black female detective. I think you said, um, because there aren't really many of those in crime fiction, certainly British crime fiction. No, I'm growing. I said, I've, been reading crime fiction for as long as I could remember and reading British crime fiction the main characters were the main character detectives they were always white men and I've never I'd never seen a black either a black male detective or black female detective in British crime fiction American crime fiction a few but not in British crime fiction and especially now as obviously being older and doing the job that I do being aware that there are black not even just black, there are black and Asian um, female detectives who I've met and who I've effectively worked with. Mm. And for them not to be seen in crime fiction in this day and mm. age, it's, it's wrong, yeah. <laughs> in a sense. So for me, it was important for Henley to be seen. But I mean, you say you're a huge crime fiction fan, but do you think you know, a lot of um, black readers maybe are, are put off reading crime fiction or were because they, they didn't see themselves reflected in it as lead characters I think so because I always say it's important to be represented whether it's representation in the person writing the book or representation in the characters that are in the book but what you don't want is just to see images of yourself or of your family just in terms of being a criminal and that was also that that was probably an aspect that people would consider when they're picking up a crime fiction book is like, well, how am I, how am I going to be portrayed? How am I going to be represented? So, I mean, the the serial crime unit, the characters in there, I mean, they're very diverse. Yeah. I don't think it was a conscious mm. thing that I did. It was just those were the characters that that I created, and you know, the world I live in and the world I work in, it is a very diverse sure. world. So. If I was to create a serial crime unit that was just had one white person, sorry, one black person yeah. in there, for me that wouldn't yeah. have been representative. But also, it's important to have someone like Henley and also Ramuta because yeah. they're working together. Yeah. We showed them at the forefront, leading a case, working a case, but also showing that they have 
they have families. Yes. <laughs> they have yeah. lives. Do you think the, the situation in crime fiction in general, I think it's improved quite a lot. You get more diversity in lead characters, protagonists now um, than you did sort of 10 years ago, I think. I don't know if you agree. No, I, I do agree. I would say definitely, definitely more also in the last five mm. years that you're seeing more, let's say, writers who look like me and more Asian writers, male, females um, out there. And then also seeing those characters leading the story and representing representing the authors also, but also representing the people who should be reading them. Because once you see yourself, you're more likely to, right, I need to pick up the yeah, sure. I need to read yeah. it because I, I can see myself here. And so, as you say, you've been a, always been a huge reader of crime fiction, but you, you've been published in other genres, haven't you, before crime fiction? Yeah. Um, I dabbled, I say dabbled, I like speculative fiction, so a bit yeah. of sci-fi yeah. I've done, and then what I'd call contemporary fiction, family drama, um, I've written in. So, as I said, we like, it's a bit of um, a, a bee in my bonnet <laughs> about this, is that I feel that sometimes writers, the black writers, Asian writers, they can kind of get pigeonholed into writing one type sure. of story. And I just feel that it's important for people to know that we can write and we do write everything. So whether it is crime, drama, romance, sci-fi, we do write everything. So it's, it's important for those writers to be seen. Yeah. Do you think it was inevitable you would you would turn to crime one day being such a fan of crime fiction? Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to happen. <laughs> it was just, and there were so many um, stories that I'd started and then, just didn't finish right. but I knew because I always had like characters bubbling away and certain scenes and stories bubbling away in my head so I was like no I, I will be writing crime so I love this genre too much not to be a part of it. Can you tell us a bit about the path to publication of The Jigsaw Man was it uh, did it take a long time or was it snapped up? It was snapped up. Um, I did. I wrote The Jigsaw Man as part of my creative writing masters at City University. So I had to write the book. So I finished that in 2018. Mm. And then um, the university, they sent out extracts of the students' books in an anthology to agents. And I think that was sent out in November 2018. And I think about a couple of weeks later, I had seven agents asked for the full manuscript. Yeah. And then I sent it out to a couple more who had been um, recommended to me. And by the new year, so January 2019, I signed with Ollie Monson from AM Heath. And then I think it was less than two weeks after that, I the book went out on submission to publishers and then it went into an auction. That's great. So by March 2019, yeah, so March 2019, I I think I was in the sixth publisher auction and I signed with HQ so it did happen I mean writing I've always written so that's that yeah. didn't happen overnight no. but finishing the book and the book going out and then getting an agent and then getting published was it a real that did seem that was like whirlwind was it a real help then to do the course and sort of have a deadline imposed on you to get the book finished definitely I'm I've learned this about myself. I do not do well about a deadline. If I didn't have a deadline, I, I can find a million things mm. to do. I would the thing I should be doing. So having that structure of doing the course and having to finish the book, 
And obviously by doing the course, and because it's was focused on crime and thriller writing, I was able to work on things like plot and structure and characterization and things like that. So having that structure in place was extremely beneficial to me. And I said, I finished the book. You know, I think I finished the first draft was done in less than a year. And uh, I imagine being a criminal solicitor is quite a demanding, time-consuming job. And so, you know, you must have really wanted to get that book done, get it finished. <laughs> I had to. There were times when it was a crazy time, I remember, because I teach as well. I'm in a law school, right. freelancer and law tutor. So there was a time when I was, I remember going to court during the day and I was teaching in the evening, marking exam papers and then having to get this draft done of the Jigsaw Man. And to this day, I have no idea yeah, okay. <laughs> how I managed to get it done. But I do remember being in court whilst I was waiting for like my case to be called on because no one ever told you you spend so much time in court just waiting for things to happen. So there'd be times I'd be sitting in the back of court and I'll just be working away oh, well, on right. a chapter. So any any bit of spare time I could find, I'd use it. Oh, that's great. Don't tell your clients that you, you were doing that instead of thinking about their case. No. <laughs> they, <laughs> no, I would never tell them that. But they have asked. The ones who found me, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, social media, they can find you. And they've asked if they're in it. And I'm like, no, you're not in it. <laughs> and uh, it's not the... Uh, going to be the end of Angelica Henley. Um, I think we can give that much away. She's going to return um, in your next book. She's she's definitely returning. They're all um, yeah, Henley, Remuta, the serial crimes unit, even the annoying husband, yeah. <laughs> Rob. Will be, so you th- they'll be returning in books. Too. Do you have an idea of how how many books this series is going to be? Are you taking it as it comes? I kind of have four. Ideas. I have another, perfectly another three book ideas to go. And I hope I can keep it going for as long as I can with the series because I think it's important for Henley to be out there and stay out there for as long as she yeah, can. Yeah, great. Well, Nadine, thanks. It's great fun. Thank you so much for this. Uh, let, Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let me tell you all The Jigsaw Man is out now, published by HQ in hardback and as an ebook. Uh, Nadine Matheson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jake. It was a pleasure. Now, uh, following on from our debut crime novelist, we move on to somebody who's written several highly acclaimed thrillers. Uh, Mel McGrath uh, has a number of different hats with slightly different labels on. As Melanie McGrath, she's written non-fiction books, including Motel Nirvana, which won the John Llewellyn Reese Prize. As MJ McGrath, she's written a series of chilling mysteries set in the Arctic. And as Mel McGrath, she's recently established herself in the psychological thriller field with books such as Give Me the Child, and The Guilty Party. And now we're going to talk about her latest novel. It's called Two Wrongs. Uh, again, it's been highly praised. Uh, Satnam Sanghera said in The Times, I can't remember the last time I was so invested in a book. And the uh, great novelist Erin Kelly says, I cared desperately about these characters and turned the pages frantically, praying for their survival. Clever, compassionate, and completely compelling. And I endorse all of that. Um, welcome, uh, Mel, MJ sometimes. But uh, perhaps you could... Set the scene for us with your new book and tell us a bit about the very striking opening. Um, hi, Jake. Um, great to be with you. And thanks for that intro. I hope I can live <laughs> up to it. Two Wrongs is set in Bristol and it opens on the Clifton Suspension Bridge where a young woman is threatening to throw herself from the bridge 
And the action really moves on from there. That event sets off a, a sequence of young women making attempts on their lives. It's a story fundamentally about a mother, Honor, and her daughter, Nevis, who is a friend of some of these women, who Honor is desperate to protect. Of course, it being a psychological thriller, the plot yeah. thickens very much. And in the course of Honor trying to protect Nevis, she comes across someone from her past who she'd very much like to take yeah. revenge on. So there's a revenge element in the story yeah. as well. So it's, it's a great um, start on the Clifton Suspension Bridge. And you begin really with uh, a character called uh, Sondra, who's not going to play a huge part in the story, but initially she sees somebody looking like they're about to jump um, and she tries to stop her. She gets involved. And it just it struck me it was almost a corrective to your last book, The Guilty Party, which was about a lot of people um, seeing... Uh, sexual assault going on and, and for various reasons turning a blind eye and not telling the police and not wanting to get involved this the start of this book almost restored my faith in human nature uh, was that something you were consciously thinking of uh actually i wasn't but um i'm so glad that you picked that out i mean i love sandra she's as you say she's a she's a minor character but she's a, a kind yeah. of moral compass in the book she's a moral touchstone and I guess um, I've always been fascinated by bridges and particularly in the context of the way um, that people build bridges between mm, their present yeah. and their past and between each other. Um, and Clifton Suspension Bridge is such an iconic um, bridge, not simply as a, as a suicide spot, but also as a place that... Um, that Links kind of more or less links to links England and Wales and links countryside and city and so all of that that kind of rich metaphor of of connection between people and events and their past and their present I think is can can be sort of summed up in that metaphor yeah. of the bridge and as well as being metaphorical um, you also bring that element of Bristol and the whole city to to life really I, I was talking to Nadine earlier about bringing Deptford to life. And this book, it's a bit of a love letter to Bristol. It seems to have its own microclimate at times. And uh, I think you refer to its almost feral people, but in a nice in a nice way. <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a love letter to Bristol. I don't know how, wh whether you know the city as an outsider or if you've lived there. I do. I, I haven't ever lived in Bristol, but um, I do have a very, very good friend who lives there and is part of the university, um, the Bristol University. And I, I should, I should add that the university in Two Wrongs yes. is a fictional university. Yeah. It's called Avon. Um, and um, I have family members who've gone to university at the city, so it's somewhere that I've come back to over and over again. And I really love because it again, it's got so mm. many contrasts. It's got this wonderful old architecture, which is very atmospheric and mm -hmm. kind of looming and of course uh in the background has some kind of a, a sinister past it's bristol's very wrapped up in sure. old slave trade and um and at the same time it's a very progressive place it's a place where people go to kind of test them test out alternative ways of living and honor in the in the story is a kind of um what we used to call in the 90s a, a new age traveller. Um, uh, she's 
settled, but she still has a lot of those values. You know, she's someone who values freedom and um, authenticity, and um, she's very un, um, uh, hmm. unmaterialistic. Uh, she uh, she goes around in baggy yeah. old Oxfam clothes, um, and uh, that's an aspect of Bristol that's seems to me very likable. I like yes. that. Part. It's interesting because uh, when I read your M. J. McGrath thrillers uh, writing about the Arctic, and uh, um, you know, you, you bring the Arc- the areas uh, those books are set in to life brilliantly. It's interesting to see you doing the same thing with a place that's more familiar to British readers and, and doing it just as well. Well, thank you. I, I I always like to make the setting of my stories a character um, with all those, the character traits, you know, that the setting itself kind of drives some of the plot. Um, the setting is the character um, and the setting itself is somehow changed a bit by what happens in the yeah. course of the book and I, I hope that's what I've done for Bristol and uh, I think we can without giving too much away we can we can say that uh, um, the girl on the bridge who looks like she's going to jump she's a university student um, called Satnam and uh, she has a best friend called Nevis they live together and Nevis is really I think she's the character that most people in the book are going to fall in love with she's an unusual character isn't she she loves maths birds uh satnam and that's about it really um uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah and um nevis is very much her own yeah she's yeah. very much her own person i think she's you know she's the kid in school that you would always think was the, the quirky kid in school um she doesn't quite understand the rules of that everyone else mm. seems to be playing by and i think we've yeah. all got an aspect of nevis in us haven't we we've all got that bit of us that thinks, oh, other people all seem to know something that I don't. And that's kind of nevish yes, yeah. down to a T. And she um, she feels guilty about Satnam because they had a bit of an argument before Satnam went to the bridge. And, and there's more to it than that. But um, she, she feels this sort of desperate need to find out what happened to her, what drove her to go to the bridge and threaten to jump off. Um, and so Nevis is playing uh, sort of playing the role of detective in the book. But... Uh, in some ways, she's not a great detective because she finds it difficult to read people. She's more comfortable with, you know, dealing with maths than human beings. Uh, on the other hand, one of her uni lecturers says she's a lot more methodical than most nineteen-year-olds are. So she's got sort of advantages and disadvantages as a sleuth. Yeah, I I really like flawed sleuths. Um, I I love. Uh, inventing characters who are the kind of amateur detectives who are driven by something very emotional and very personal in them, but who don't necessarily have all the tools yeah. in the box. Um, and I love to see the way that they that they stumble around and um, maybe misinterpret mm. clues. And I've always found um, I've always found detectives who get everything right rather yeah. dull yeah. Um, and slightly. And slightly inhuman, um, because I think, as we know, we're, we we all get things wrong all the time. Um, and the great thing about uh, Nevis is that she has skills that actually aren't people skills, that are much more to do with mathematics, but that do have an application in the 
in her success in being able to um, work out what's happening with Satnam and in a wider context. Um, so I, I guess it was a kind of celebration of uh, the, the, the idea that everyone has a part of them that can be a detective, um, even people who don't seem to have the, the obvious, uh, for, at first glance, don't seem to have the obvious skills. I've got a part, a superpower, kind of hidden superpower that would enable them to um, uh, to yeah, solve a mystery. That really comes across. Um, and she, she also has to learn to lie for the first time, which is something she's never really computed before. Yeah, well, I love the idea of someone who's. Um, I'm. I like most novelists. I'm <laughs> terribly good at lying. <laughs> Um, I've sort of made it into an art form. Um, uh, I try not to do it when it's yeah. not appropriate, obviously. But um, uh, I think writing a novel is kind mm. of a form of lying in a way, um, particularly in the detective in, de- in detective or mystery or psychological fiction, because so much of it is mm. about misdirecting. Yeah. You're playing a game with the reader, really. So much of it is about misdirecting the reader and. Um, persuading the reader to join in with the game Um, and the idea of someone who uh, can't really lie it's not really in her vocabulary she doesn't really know how to do it Um, it was very uh, attractive to me it's something it was sort of uh, people say write about you know what you know and I'm very interested in writing about Mm, what I don't know but what I can imagine you don't um, give her a, a named condition like Asperger's or anything you haven't put a label on her no, I didn't want to do that because I, I think that, um, well, firstly, I, I don't have the authority to do that. Um, and I'm a novelist. I'm not a psychologist or a doctor or a psychiatrist. Um, and secondly, I think that um, the, the labels don't mm-hmm. really encompass the person. Uh, and I want the readers to see the person rather than a label and in fact I didn't have a label in mind I mean she's she I just had that sense I guess of the kid at school that um that you were really drawn to even though they were very quirky and um or perhaps because they were very quirky and so that's what Nevis is for me she's She's the kid that I at school that I would have wanted mm-hmm. to know, but maybe yeah, was a bit yeah. scared of getting to know. And um, yes, and she's uh, doing her detective thing uh, at the same time. She's got the uh, issues in her own family you alluded to at the beginning going on in the background. And her, I think people will love in this book the relationship between Nevis and her mother, Honor, um, because uh, Nevis has discovered a secret that we're not privy to at least to to start with, but it's affected her relationship. But at the same time, uh, Honor has come to Bristol to be there for her. It's it's a war- very very warm relationship, even though it's obviously strained at the moment, and, and that comes across. Um, uh, was that fun writing those two? Yeah, um, yeah. I I really wanted to explore um, the kind of the warm loving relationship between a mother and daughter who also drive one another nuts um and I, I think a lot of us can relate to that um uh and it's a, it's a feature of a lot of mother-daughter relationships um and they drive one another nuts I think partly because 
they kind of forget that the other one is yeah. someone completely different, mm. someone completely separate um, with their own individual personalities. And in, in some ways, Honor and Nevis are kind of mm. polar opposites. Nevis is a bit, um, Honor is a bit shambolic, the mother is a bit shambolic and a bit new agey and a bit woo-woo. And uh, Nevis is all about uh, science and evidence and being methodical and she's very neat and she lives in a um uh, her shared flat with satnam but her bedroom is sort of all the white walls and everything's where it should be whereas um uh, she's actually grown up in a narrow boat um parked in a canal in hackney with her mother in this sort of surrounded by the kind of g- gentle fading <laughs> chaos of her mother's life and as you say on a, um when Nevis is in trouble, even though their relationship is difficult at the moment. Honor hotfoots it to Bristol from London. And as you say, she fits in rather well in Bristol. Um, uh, so much of the book alternates between the perspectives of Nevis and Honor. Um, but there's another viewpoint character, Cullen. And he's, uh, Cullen is, he's, he's, well, there's two male university lecturers in this book, and they're both pretty appalling in their different ways. Uh, it's clear that in some way there are sexual relationships between lecturers and students going on in this book, perhaps in exchange for inflated grades. We find out more, obviously, as the plot goes along. Um, but, for example, so this is Cullen, the university lecturer. This is his views on the subject. Faculty affairs with undergraduates were almost a perk of the job, but the landscape has changed post-Me Too. It would all calm down, of course, and revert back to normal eventually, but right now was not the time to be flagrantly flouting the rules. So we get a pretty idea of his moral compass from uh, that little passage. Um, so Cullen, but I, I think unless I'm a terrible person, I did spend quite a lot of the book feeling quite sorry for Cullen. Is, is that how I should have been feeling? Oh, I'm glad you said that. Um, yeah, well, I'm not really interested mm. in cartoon villains. I'm interested in um, why people are led to do extreme things um, that they would never have done in normal circumstances. I think quite often because they're not willing to look at where those, where the origin of those feelings might come from. And certainly in Cullen's case, he has an extremely difficult mm. relationship with his mother. And he's been, uh, he's a child prodigy. He's been pushed into a situation uh, as a child, as a young boy, young man, really, um, that he really wasn't equipped to emotionally to be able to deal with. Um, and I guess I was struck. Um, I mean, they're very different characters, but I, I, there's always some kind of element of the real in, in the characters that I pick up on and create. And when I was at university, um, there was a 12 year old maths um, right. genius was came to college at the same time as me. And, uh, I just had that real feeling. Obviously, she was brilliant, but I, I had that feeling about her that she was also mm. incredibly lost, and that um, what her uh, parents or the institution had done in welcoming her, welcoming her into um, this environment was to mm. steal some of her childhood. And so we get that with with Cullen, who's now in his late thirties, isn't he? But uh, he's this ex-child prodigy, and uh, mm. it's, it's one of the reasons he's messed up. And as you say, there's this horrible mother, the Dalek, he calls her, um, 
she is you talk about difficult (laughs) daughter mother relationships but this one is something else I think yeah um difficult mother son relationships yeah there's something about a mother son relationship uh that that to to me that when it goes wrong it can go really really radically wrong um and somehow it seems more difficult it certainly is for for Cullen and his mother more difficult to extricate themselves from it they don't neither of them have any Mm. perspective on it at all it just goes on being ever more toxic um until until something has to give and indeed yes that's what and he's also Cullen poor old Cullen I call him even though He's quite a terrible person, but he also has this terrible marriage as well, on top of everything else. Um, well, yes, uh, it's no um, it's no coincidence that he's married someone who controls him mm. just as much as his mother does. So he's being controlled by women yes. on, on both, you know. Uh, and, and in a way... Um, that will explain some of his desire to do a bit mm. of controlling of women of him for him for himself. Um, you know, control and who has the power in relationships is really deeply embedded in all the characters in this, all the character relationships. In Those relationships, in especially Cullen's relationships with his wife and his mother, it's very dark, but it's also very funny at times. It's very extremely dark humour. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, I did have fun um, writing him. I always have fun writing the villains. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I did have fun because he's. I think both of them are are aware. All three of them actually. The the wife, the mother, and Cullen himself are all aware of um, how uh, mm, how yeah. awful they all are, and how entangled they all are, and how they can't get out of it. Um, yeah. And they're they're just stuck in this kind of awful trio of toxicity and trying to get the kind of best one another. Um, It's bound to go horribly wrong, but in a wonderful way. (laughs) Um, You've and you've spoken publicly before about um, you were sexually harassed by one of your university lecturers um, in your um, teenage years. and you and another ex-student spoke out about this a couple of years ago, I think after the man had died, and your old college subsequently investigated and apologised for what he had been allowed to get away with. Um, and obviously that's a theme that's in this book, mm-hmm. the way that male academics are facilitated in preying on vulnerable female students or, or any female student is vulnerable because the male academic is the one with the power Um is it a, a, an issue you think is still a current issue that you wanted to explore? Mm, I would, yeah. I, um, thank you for bringing it up. I would say that in two wrongs it happens to be male academics, but um, in from what I learned from going through this big inquiry um, that uh, that happened as a result of my going public about what happened to me. Um, it's not confined to relationships between male academics and females. Um, it can be female academics. It can be male academics um, targeting young men. Um, it, it's it's a relation. It's a an abuse of power relationship, and so uh, it it's not kind of gender specific. 
Um, but yeah, I mean that that it took me um, sort of thirty years and the two and the Me Too movement to really well a to have the courage to go public, but b to really realize that that's mm. what had happened to me um, in a strange way. Um, and I really wanted to explore the extent to which uh, themes around consent and so on, power, um, the kind of sexual abuse of power. Uh, have changed and how in two wrongs it's young women but it could equally be young men how um, young women see themselves as having agency in in sexual relationships with um, in this case it's men who are much older and have a lot more power Um, and you know so much talk about consent and so much I think a much better understanding of it and maybe young women have a better understanding of it certainly than I did when I was at university. But I, I wonder whether on the ground things have changed as much as yeah. we would like to think they have. And uh, do you think was writing this book at all any way of processing your feelings about what happened to you or, or is that a bit too glib? Um. Well, certainly I had this, the, the young women in Two Wrongs feel terribly trapped and um, unable to uh, unable to release themselves from their trap. And the trap is not simply about, I would say, not simply about whether or not there, there is abuse of power going on in, um, in a university context, but also other pressures on them, um, which I think young women and men, but young women maybe in particular, really feel to a degree that I didn't have when mm. I was at university. So, yeah, you know, yeah. social media and the pressure to perform and all those kinds of um, things. And um, so I, I really, I guess I use that feeling of um, helplessness and vulnerability mm. uh, and the feeling that um, I can remember someone saying to me when, the inquiry into what happened to me was going well you could have just you could have just gone to the principal of the college and how lacking that was in the sense that of, of an understanding of my lived experience as an 18 year old girl from from the sticks who was in this you know very prestigious ancient university and was in awe and would never have, you know, could barely bring myself to look at the principal of the college, let alone um, go to to them for help. And so those sort of, that that real sense of um, how vulnerable young people are and how little help that's, how little help is out there that they can actually access. I mean, there there might be a lot of... um, nominally processes that they can go through and complaints that they can draw and so on but that they all um are predicated on having the confidence to do that and or being able to understand that that's something they can do and i guess the you know one of the really strange things that happened during that process which i definitely fed into the book was that the moment i came went out into public, into the public realm, and said, "This is what happened to me." Was the moment I doubted it. 
So my first thought was, what if I've made this up? What if this isn't true? And I've, uh, we've seen that over and over again, I think, in, in um, the hesitancy that um, women in particular have um, experienced in coming forward, that you really do doubt yourself mm. and you kind of doubt your yeah. reality. And yeah. there's quite a lot of that going on yeah. in, the, in the book, the, the young women doubting their reality. And when someone who's more powerful comes to you, as, as they do in the book, and say, no, that's not your reality, this is your reality, there's a part of them that is not able to resist that. And, and so they really find yeah. themselves living in someone else's reality, which is where mm. the feeling of being I, I notice you dedicated the book it, it's to those who continue to listen. So it's those people, I guess, who... Um, do listen to your lived experience and don't say, well, why didn't you do this or you're making it up? Yeah, I mean, that that really, I think because I'd mentioned, again, because of what happened to me and I'd mentioned it in passing um, numerous times over the years and right. it never really mm -hmm. got picked up and no one, no one ever sort of, nothing came of it. And then... Um, I think as a result of the whole Me Too movement, it was suddenly taken seriously after all this time. That felt um, mm. that felt very extraordinary. Uh, and I think um, in the book there are people who listen as well as people who don't listen. And um, I was I really wanted to make that distinction between people who listen and take this things seriously and are actually on side with um, the vulnerable young people and the people who don't and they're not always who you yeah. might think that they would be. Well, thanks very much. Um, it, it's also a book about the perils of friendship I guess between teenage girls or university age women um, which is something that Nevis in particular finds bewildering this particular minefield. Um, these, these friendships they can be extremely intense but that also makes it easy for the girls to feel possessive of each other and then easily for them to feel betrayed and in turn on each other. Is that, is that something you wanted to explore particularly? Yeah, I think those um, teenage girls in particular, uh, it's mm. just all the feelings all the time. Um, and that makes them a great topic for uh, mm. exploration psychological novel because their feelings are so big and they're so intense, and the relationships between them are so intense. And um, looking back from the perspective of being a bit older, it's kind of easy to to think, mm. "Oh, just get a grip." You know, this doesn't yeah, yeah. this doesn't matter that much in the scheme of things. Um, no. But they can't see it that way, of course, because they they're they're twenty or they're nineteen, they're twenty. So in, they're in that world where their um, relationships with one another are kind of the centre of their lives, really. Um, and, yeah, and I'm very, I was very struck by, I mean, there is, a, there is a series of suicides and attempted suicides, and I was very struck by how easily people of, of that age can be influenced by um, the actions that their peers are, are up to. And um, poor old Nevis, of course, finds it all um, totally confusing. She can't understand why Satnam is her best friend, but yet she feels more comfortable talking about certain things with other friends and doing things. And, and this is 
something she can't compute. No, she can't. Um, she doesn't really have very much confidence in herself uh, or very much self-regard. Um, on the, but which I think is very common in in mm. young people, um, sadly. Um, but she has, in a funny way, she's sort of mm. grounded. Yeah. She kind of yeah. knows what she likes. She knows what she's good at and she knows what she isn't good at because people have been telling her that because she's not good at the things that most people ex expect young women to be good at, like friendships and being social and reading social cues and so on. She's, she's very clear about what her limits are and um, what her strengths are. And I think that makes her very different from the um, young women around who, who are flailing around much, much more. And it makes her much more um, able, in a way, to step in and to be the person who changes things. Well, thank you. Um, now, I mentioned at the uh, beginning that you were a co-founder of uh, Killer Women. And uh, I wondered if you might just um, fill us in a, a little bit about what exactly Killer Women is and does um, well, I co-founded Killer Women with Louise Miller, um, another psychological thriller writer, um, maybe, oh, it's probably about five years ago now, uh, as a way of, um, well, we just, it was a mm, kind of yeah. stitch and bitch <laughs> at the beginning. Um, <laughs> uh, I was sort of conscious that authors often don't see one another except in the context of literary events and things when we're all sort of on and um, and then we come off the stage and we all get drunk very, very rapidly as fast as possible. Um, and it was just a, a, a way of getting together and socialising, but also talking about, I think, the, 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 um, the ways in which crime fiction and that big umbrella that is crime fiction mm. um, represents women... Um, both in terms of how they're represented in the context of the the, the books or the TV dramas, but also um, yeah. how it treats women writers. Um, and at the time, um, our sort of sister organisation, so to speak, in um, the States, um, which was founded by Sarah Paretsky, uh, was talking a lot about... Um, the fact, for example, that psychological thriller writing, which is very dominated by women and the readership is a lot, mm. mostly women, I would say, um, that it, it, it gets mm. passed over yeah. for the prizes, for example. Um, and I think to some degree that that's, mm. and, and reviews and so on, and to some degree that's still the case, that um, you know, crime, crime fiction sees itself... Um, can see itself very much in terms of detective fiction or procedural um, fiction, which is um, wonderful, but mm. it's a much broader term. And that's that's interesting so, because obviously it's been a genre that uh, women have always been at the forefront of as writers, and as you say, um, a lot of them are readers, but then, as you point out, um, a lot of their work is ghettoised. Yeah, well, it was mm -hmm. it was ever ever thus. Um, but I I do think some of the most, um, <laughs> I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? But we we have a membership of about 
21, I think, at the moment. And I think um, that some of the some of the best writing in crime fiction is coming out mm. of those killer women members at the moment. I think there's wonderful work being done by, um, I won't name any of them because I would then want to name all of them, but um, they're all doing wonderful work. But I, I think that, um, that uh, we're kind of, women are moving the genre on in ways that um, are exciting to me. So making much more complex sure. psychological characters, I think, would be one way. Um, it's not that men aren't doing that, but I, I think women have mm, yeah. kind of led the way. And you organise uh, festivals and events and and so on. We we do, yeah, we do. We run a newsletter and um, uh, we keep in touch. We like to keep in touch with our readers. I mean, very very sadly, in fact, this time last year, March March twenty twenty, we were all um, lined up to run. Yep. Uh, our festival which is just mm-hmm. such a lovely event yeah. and we weren't able to do it because of the pandemic um and i i i, I don't know really yes. what we're going to be doing in the future um mm. i think it's too well, early to we say hope you will moment. return in some form or many forms uh yeah i hope so too i'm sure and, we will. Uh, i'm going to a uh, last question i think uh, as as we've brought up the uh dreaded lockdown um how is it as a a writer being locked down because in some ways it may not be different from many writers um usual lives being closeted away writing a book but uh, a lot of people obviously find it harder to concentrate harder to work how have you found it um hmm, good question um well you're right you know we spend a lot of time on our own uh, as writers and in our little rooms, um, in our little worlds. And so in that sense, I felt very, very lucky that my everyday life wasn't changed that much um, during lockdown. Um, that said, um, I'm, I'm quite looking yeah. <laughs> forward to it coming to an end at this point. <laughs> um, yeah. Enough and your already. partner is a, a crime writer too, I, I understand. Yeah, he um, he writes also. No he's got a rom com coming out this this um, so something kind of a bit yeah. more up, <laughs> uplifty. Um, yeah, but we do we do d- discuss in minute detail how to murder people over right, the, so over a, the dinner yeah. table. So it's an advantage then to um, have two crime writers living together. Well, I would say, wouldn't I, that because we can we can both murder <laughs> other people in our heads, we don't have to murder each other, especially during lockdown. Well, that's brilliant. Um, Mel, thank you very much. It's um, such a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, and Two Wrongs, really good book, gripping, absolutely gripping. Uh, that's published by HQ in hardback and ebook. And Mel, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for reaching the end of the episode. We hope you enjoyed it. It would be great if you could do us a quick favour and head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five star and then leave a nice glowing review. It'll help boost the podcast up the charts, which makes it easier for more people to find us and join our exciting podcast community.